ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Game Changer Network, and I am thrilled today because we have one of our Back by Popular Demand series with one of my favorite authors, Liz Wiseman. Liz, welcome to the show. Oh, Chickie, it's so delightful to be here. Well, you know, I looked at the publication date of your last book that we talked about, Multipliers, and I think it was 2010, right? Multipliers was 2010. I snuck another book in there called The Multiplier Effect, and I think that might have been 2013. Well, we somehow missed that one. So, uh, you know, maybe you can uh, bring us up to speed on on uh, the progression uh, of those two books and how, how your new book, uh, Rookie Smarts, fits in. And uh, Liz, before we jump into the book, so I always like to give our listeners uh, really a thumbnail of who you are, you know, what's your day job, uh, you know, how did you get started uh, in the business world and, and uh, kind of where has God taken you over your journey? Oh, well, I am a native of the Bay Area, and uh, I went to college out of state uh, in Utah. I wanted to come back and work in the Bay Area. I wanted to work for an interesting maverick company, and it was one of those wishes that got granted. You know, mm. And it's like, hold on, because I started working for Oracle when they were this small maverick software company. There were maybe, oh, about 2,000 people when I joined. So they were beyond the startup phase, but they were just on this roller coaster ride of of growth and um it was just this really exciting place to be and i was lucky to be at a place where they were growing rapidly and there were big hard things to do and i landed right when they needed young people to step up to mm. to really big hard um adult jobs jobs that we often wouldn't think of giving to people right out of college and i was teaching programming for maybe uh, about a year when they said, Liz, we need someone to manage training for the company and, you know, run our boot camps and our other technical training programs, and we want you to build a university. So, I mean, Chicky, I was 24 years old and a year out of graduate wow. school when they said, you know, do a little benchmarking, figure out what, you know, these different companies are doing with universities and, and build us a university. And And honestly, I think the only thing I really knew was that this was a grown-up job, and I was still kind of a kid. <laughs> and, you know, my only real qualification for running a university was that I had recently been at a university. And, and right. I, I, was, I mean, I, was, I just knew that I was underqualified for this job, and I wasn't really ready to go into management. And, you know, but I also was smart enough to know that you don't say no to your first promotional opportunity. You... Oh, definitely. And, you know, it's interesting because I did my first startup within uh, actually American Airlines at the time. It later became Sabre because I've always been uh, in the travel industry and, and the technology side of things. And, you know, it was great to be able to start up something within the comfort of having a regular paycheck, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, because while it was risky uh, to take on something, uh, you know, brand new and out of the box, um, you know, the risk was mitigated by the fact that you had the safety of that, that, that landing place, right? Uh, and, you know, I had even less background than you did simply because I actually never completed my degree. I, I went to college and uh, after, well, in first semester, I wrote a paper on the value of experience versus education. And you can guess how that one turned out. <laughs> I yeah, went that's home self-fulfilling, isn't it? Yeah, I went home at Thanksgiving and said to my mom and dad, you know what, I really think I would learn more out in the business world. And, I, you know, for me, I was right, uh, not for everybody. So so after Oracle, um, what happened uh, after Oracle University? I'm, I'm sure it was a, a raging success. What happened after that? Well, you know, I was at Oracle for 17 years because I was given this steady stream of jobs that were just too big for me, and it was a thrilling place to work. And I think what I learned at Oracle, um, I mean, I was surrounded by really, really exceptional and really bright people, which is what led us to, led me to, you know, this idea of some leaders use their intelligence 
to multiply the intelligence of others. But I think what I learned at Oracle is say yes to hard things before you're prepared for them and then figure it out as mm. you go. And, you know, after about 15 years in, in big management jobs, I honestly started to feel like I knew what I was doing. And while any normal sane person, you know, might think that that would be a good feeling, you know, where I finally felt legit and, you know, <laughs> I, I remember one of the telltale signs, and this is so crazy to think of this, is that I used to go in to get my hair cut, and I would always say to my hairstylist, could you give me a haircut that makes me look about 10 years older? <laughs> because I was always this kid, and people were always shocked. You know, like at one point, my, my uh, one of the my boss was introducing me to some Oracle customers, and he said, this is Liz, she runs a university, and he, was, he, had, he did a double take, and... And my boss jumped in and said, yeah, you know, she's not particularly well qualified for her job. You know, and he gets this kind of twinkle in his eye thinking that was pretty funny. And I'm like, oh, I've got to defend myself. And, and I jumped in and said, okay, but who wants a job they're qualified for? You know, because <laughs> there'd be nothing to learn. And it's really how I felt. And when I, when I stopped telling my hairstylist to give me haircuts that make me look older, that I realized that I had – my experience and my age had caught up with my responsibilities. And, oh, I love that. And it, and I started to feel stagnant because I had been on this really, really rapid growth curve. And I don't mean career growth in terms of being given promotions and such. I mean, that was, that was there, but it was that learning curve was so steep and it was starting to taper off. And, and I think you know, one of the things I've observed from my own experience of watching colleagues and friends and doing this research that I did for this book that, you know, it's called Rookie Smarts, is that when we linger too long on a plateau or we keep working in areas that we have skills and capability and feel legit, I, a little part of us dies inside. And it's when mm. we step out and do something we don't know how to do, when we move into a rookie mode, doing something new and important and hard, you know, something big and a little bit scary and we're we're new to it, this is where we feel alive. I've heard so many people tell me it was the best time of my career, not when they were young, but when they were new to a challenge. And, and that's why I left Oracle. Mm. I finally felt like, okay, I knew how to run a corporate university. I know how to run a talent management function for a global company. Now I didn't know everything, of course, but the steepness in that learning curve had tapered to the point I needed to go do something that I didn't really know how to do. And I'd always been a big reader of management books. I had hired a lot of professors into Oracle to come, you know, be guest faculty in our university. And, and you know, I decided that certainly that couldn't be that hard. I mean, I think maybe they had opened up their world to me in such a way that it felt just accessible enough. <clears throat> and I love research. And, um I don't necessarily love to write, but I found that it's, you know, it's not as hard as it seems. And right. that's <laughs> well, and and it's a necessary step in in actually figuring out what you know. And I remember writing my my first book, and it, and it wasn't uh, a broad based business book like you have tackled, but it was a, a very very specific tome for my industry about you know the the technology uh, of my industry. And uh, the book actually had this ridiculous price on it of nine hundred and ninety-five dollars, and and so even though that's I only ridiculous, got a small... but bold. Yes, yes. Well, for my first book, I thought it wasn't bad, right? <laughs> um, but you don't have to sell a lot of copies, you know, which is which is nice because there's just not a lot of pressure. But I, I remember I worked on it for about nine months, and I and I didn't have uh, my consulting firm wasn't uh, mature enough to have staff around so I didn't have anybody as a research assistant so I did it all and you know I was writing about the history of an industry so you know there was quite a bit of research that had to be done and I will never forget when I received the printed copy and I got on an airplane I was on my way to a, a consulting client and I read it for the first time you know you read wow. your chapters over and over and over again as you're writing as you but know it's very different um, if you're reading the book oh, as a and reader when I was done the writer. with I couldn't believe that I had written it. And I thought, wow, I know a lot. And and the cool thing is I was then able to translate that into kind of a new career of becoming the expert in that field to the investment community. So 
um, yeah, there is learning that goes through that. But uh, let's let's kind of fast forward a little bit. So in in uh, you left Oracle in 2005 after 16 years, uh, 16, as I understand 17 it. Seventeen but you know, seventeen. And and then uh, was Mindshare learning your company, or did someone hire you into that firm? Oh, that was my company, and I left Oracle uh, wanting to do something with. Um, the development of leadership talent and with executives. I started doing, you know, I really just left Oracle and hung up a shingle, as they say, and right. started to coach um, a number of executives. Uh, most of them were tech executives. And one of the great things about Oracle, it was this um, amazing, and it still is, an amazing talent factory. And so mm-hmm. a lot of Silicon Valley, the leadership of Silicon Valley is populated with ex-Oracle executives. Um, I wasn't the only one who was given jobs kind of bigger um, than than um, the person at the time. So there's a lot of people who really grew up at Oracle and then went off to lead firms. I started doing um, executive coaching and development work for a lot of these these folks, and then that just sort of spread out. And it was actually in one of those coaching assignments that the, the germ for multipliers uh, was, was born. And that's when I started to to really do the research and the writing that has led mm-hmm. to these last three books. And and so you mentioned uh you referred to multipliers as as looking at the ability of individuals to take what they have and to actually multiply that learning into other people, which I, I really find fascinating. And then the follow on book, tell me a little bit about that since we uh we actually I think we missed that one. Oh, the follow-on book, I can sum that up in a nutshell, and that is The Multiplier Effect. It's not a sequel to Multipliers. It's um, it's a tangent in that uh, it is written for educational leaders. We found that the ideas in Multiplier, the idea that the leader's intelligence and knowledge could be a multiplier to the intelligence and knowledge of the team, that the best leaders make everyone smarter and more capable was um, – and I did that really resonated in education in K through 12 and mm. in higher ed. And so we took this concept and then we replicated the research process in education. And that was an absolute thrill. It was a really, really fun project to work on and um, a work I feel really good about. Uh, and then it was after that that, in fact, I had started the research for Rookie Smart. And it was a project I was really, really excited about. And this opportunity to write a version of Multipliers for Educational Leaders came along. And I initially mm-hmm. said, no, I'm already in the, immersed <laughs> in a research project, can't do it. And it right. called to me. And um, I decided to do it. And I actually turned it into a bit of a mother-daughter project um, as well. So I put Rookie Smarts on hold for about uh, a year. And then I came back to it because it was calling to me. Right, right. So the the whole premise behind Rookie Smarts is that learning actually beats knowing. And that is so counterintuitive for so many people who have worked their whole life to master something. So so talk to me a little bit about that. Your Your first chapter is called The Rise of the Rookie. Well, I think there's a lot of us who, particularly those who have been in the workforce for a while, grew up under a very different set of rules than apply right now. We did grow up with an assumption that, um, you know, we've all heard the saying, knowledge is power. Yeah. And I think we're operating now in an environment where there's more power in not knowing. And knowledge can actually become uh, a hindrance because... I mean, we see this right now. There's so much information coming at us that there's too much for any one person to know. So instead of holding knowledge and dispensing it, we're finding that the real skill is not what you know. It's your ability to access what other people know. Like how fast can you Google it? How fast can you consult a group of experts? The synthesizing (laughs) and the integrating of knowledge is really the currency of the current economy. And we're also <laughs> right. finding that that you know that we all know this. The world is changing really fast. Technology has allowed our business cycles to spin so fast that I mean, well, they, they're spinning so fast that work is bleeding, you know, into a twenty-four by seven mode for a lot of people. But it's spinning so fast 
that so often we don't even face the same problem twice. Like you gear up around a problem, you build knowledge, and just right. when you think you've got this base and now you can replicate that and reap the investment from having learned something, the problems change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, well. You know, for for me, uh, that so resonates because 20 years ago, I formed a consulting firm. And it actually had a different name uh, at its outset because I was partnering with another uh, individual who kind of had the tech skill and I had the strategy and marketing uh, side of things. And and when I split from him, uh, I ended up – I'll, I'll never forget. I went in and actually woke up my husband because uh, – the the name solutions with a Z on the end was available and it was it was five thousand dollars but I thought you know what having a URL that short that actually says exactly what it is that I do which is solve problems for people right so I formed this firm and and over the course of the last twenty years and I can't believe it's been that long you know I we have not done two projects that look alike and uh, a couple of years ago about a year and a half ago I got a call from a group of doctors in Wichita Kansas that had a hospital and they wanted to build this new kind of hotel uh next door and they had gotten my name and and we were going to create this new brand and the COO called me and he said now chicky tell me how many of these you've done and I said well here's why you shouldn't even care <laughs> and I yeah. spent you know the next few minutes explaining why the the skill sets that we brought to the table would help make this successful, even though we didn't have five of them under our belt. And so, you know, I mean, that, that is just a, a, an encapsulated story about what you just said, that, that I was actually looking forward to learning something brand new. Now we didn't end up doing it, right. but I am, I'm very interested in, in the model that you portray in part one of your book. I'm, I'm a real sucker for a model. And, and this whole section of the book is about, living on the learning curve and and you've got four what i'm assuming are different uh, types of individuals backpackers hunter gatherers firewalkers and pioneers and and can you give us a little bit of the background about how that emerged and and how you saw this laying out in our ability to move out of being the experts into being comfortable on that learning curve oh absolutely well the book really explores why being new and being inexperienced can be an advantage, you know, particularly in the environment we're in right now. And what I did, the, the essence of the research <clears throat> was looking at the difference between how people with experience approach a particular type of work. It might be building um, a, a customer call automation system. It might be giving a presentation, whatever. It's how do people with experience approach a problem or a piece of work and how do people without experience, you know, but an otherwise intelligent person, um, how do they approach that very same type of work? And and my research team and I, we studied this. What do they do? How do they think about it? Who do they consult? How many people do they consult? What, how do they operate? And then how do they perform? And we correlated the performance against the behavior and we found that these we found a number of things. One, in the world of physical work, of course, being experienced is more helpful than being inexperienced. You know, I just, um, yesterday I was at the Randolph Air Force Base working with an amazing group of, of flight commanders there. And, you know, they were really interested in these ideas behind Ricky Smart. And I'm like, okay, guys, a big caveat here is this doesn't apply to a big part of what you do. You put me in a T-38 and, you know, there's nothing but badness that's going to happen to this. You know, you go listen to a first-year violin recital and you know what that's going to sound like because in physical work, you know, it takes years of mastery and practice. You know, there's the 10,000-hour rule. This is the realm I think it applies in. But in knowledge work and solving new problems, like designing uh -huh. the educational process to teach people how to fly fighter pilots, now, that's an area where being inexperienced actually turns out to be an advantage. We found in knowledge work, and particularly when it came to innovation and speed, rookies or people who were new to something important and hard tend to outperform people with experience. And then when we looked at what those top-performing rookies did, and we also looked at what top-performing experienced people did, we found they worked in radically different ways. And what Rookie Smarts is about is how we tend to operate when we're new to something. 
And it, each of those four types are really modes that we operate in. The first you mentioned is the backpacker mode. And I called it the backpacker mode because when we're new to something, we are unencumbered. We aren't limited by um, knowledge, assumptions. Often what we just don't carry with us is the knowledge that it's hard. I mean, how many times have you said (laughs) yes to do something because you were too naive to know that what you were saying yes to was difficult? And it usually (laughs) isn't until you've already, like, gone out on the trail and you've said yes to this thing and you're climbing up the learning curve that you realize, actually, this is hard. This is really difficult, and this is where I have to dig. I I dig it. And and this is where that second mode comes in. I called it the hunter-gatherer mode because we found that the – you know, although it's probably popular opinion that newcomers bring fresh ideas, it's not right. really what we found. The real value of a newcomer is that they bring no ideas. <laughs> because <laughs> you've got a big job and you are, you're not really bringing anything. You've got to go and, and mobilize the expertise of others. And we found that in this mode, we tend to be, you know, in our rookie mode, we tend to be more alert not less alert. You know, we sometimes think rookies are like clumsy, like, listen to me, I can't even say it, clumsy, bumbling, kind of clueless, clawed, sort of bumping their way through things. It's not the case at all, is that when we have a big job and we are underqualified, we pay attention, we listen, we ask more questions, we ask better questions, we seek out the expertise of others. We've found that Rookies tend to bring in five times the level of expertise to bear on a problem than experts do. Wow. You know, when you think about it, you think back to my Oracle experience at the end of my Oracle career where I felt like I pretty much knew how to run a corporate university. If another software company had hired me to go build a university for them, they would have gotten one expert. But back when Oracle put me in charge of this, they got more than one expert because I didn't have that expertise. But, man, did I talk to a lot of people, and I stayed close to so many people, and my job became integrating the expertise of others. This mode I call the hunter-gatherer mode because lacking resources locally, you're forced to go out and, and find answers and bring them back to bear. Right. And then there's the, the firewalker mode um, I call it this because, interestingly, when we're in this rookie mode, we tend to be very, very cautious. We're not big, bold risk takers. We we tend to operate in very small, calculated steps, but we move fast like you would when you're walking hot coals because you don't want to <laughs> burn. You know, you don't stay there. Like, you don't stay in your state of ignorance very long because it's kind of painful. Right. And we find that when we're new to something, we tend to deliver faster than when we have expertise, maybe because we have more to prove. And then the last mode, I called it the pioneer mode because we tend to improvise and we're scrappy and we focus on the basics. You know, we don't fancify things. We just think, what do I need to do to get this job done? And it's actually a remarkably focused orientation. And and we tend to be extremely resourceful because I think it's when you lack resources that you get really resourceful. And anyway, those are the four modes. Oh, yeah, no kidding. Well, I mean, that's the entrepreneurial story, and I spend a lot of time talking about entrepreneurialism because, you know, I, I am one. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I think about this as of the whole notion about failing fast, right? And, you know, while I have started a company before, and actually I've started a number of companies, I think I'm on number 10 right now, oh, but my. a number of, a number of those were done, as I said, in the comfort of either having a salary within a company where I was, you know, set out to, uh, you know, I was always the one who got the blank sheet of paper and, you know, here's an idea and put shape and form on it. So um, I did a lot of that. And so it's fun to look back at these four characteristics because I, I was wondering, and, and perhaps you can shed some light on this, whether even as a rookie, whether we lean toward one of these four or whether it's a process that we go through? You know, I don't think it's a linear process. I find that when we're in this rookie mode, and again, I don't mean young. I mean, regardless of age, whether we're 24 or 64, when we're new to something that's important and hard. 
and it really this important and hard is really important to point out because when we're just new to something but we haven't yet figured out that it's important or hard this is where we tend to make a lot of rookie mistakes i mean think about um I always think I, I, I travel a lot, fly a lot. I go through a lot of security lines in airports. And, you know, it's pretty easy to spot the rookies going through this. <laughs> They're like, what? My laptop? Huh? Water can't go through? And you're like, oh, that's such a rookie move. But, see, this is not an important task, and it's not a particularly hard task. It's when the stakes are high and we're underqualified that we go into one or more of these modes. There is a slight linear process to them. But usually what I find is the more of these mindsets that you have going, the more likely you're going to get this this performance effect of being new to something. Um, right. So I would say it's a body, it's a way of working that I call rookie smarts. And if you can get it going in rookie states, I think you're going to get higher performance. And if you can get it going across your organization, I think you'll find organizational agility and the ability as an organization to stay relevant in the market. And and if, despite years of experience and mastery, you know, if you're at that point where you stop telling them to cut your hair to make you look older, <laughs> and you're at the point in your career where you're kind of legit and you know what you're doing, if you can keep yourself working in these hungry, humble ways of working, it'll be such an incredible advantage. And you'll be able to be the perpetual rookie, the the leader who knows when it's time to draw on the wisdom of experience, when you're like, you know what, I, I know some things here and I need to play those cards and, and, and call that to bear, but I also know when it's time to pivot and get my rookie on. Right, and right. Ask well, the questions the and consult other experts. And... Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is as you were talking through each of those, I mean, I was thinking about a back and I, I'm not a backpacker, you know, not not even close. But uh, I do know, and, and as I said before we got on the phone today, I, I'm I'm actually at a campground for for a girls, a young girls retreat this weekend. And the rookie move when you come up to this particular campground is not being prepared with the right things to like live in this dorm for the weekend, and it's not a nice dorm like a college dorm. It's it's a campground. And and so there are things that I needed to bring, you know, to to make it work. And backpackers, while they don't need a lot, there are certain things that if they go out unprepared, um, you know, they they can get themselves into some significant trouble, especially if they're backpacking any distance or any altitude, right? And and so even though they have an unencumbered mind, there 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 still are things that you need to be equipped with. You know, whereas the hunter-gatherer can actually be more empty-handed, uh, you know, as you as you said. And I, my story isn't the haircut story. Mine is the sitting at the table and and being worried about being exposed as a fraud, right? Wow. <laughs> I'm thinking everybody's going to know that I don't know anything. Um, to the point where you know I actually had a seat at the grown-up table, and um, and and that was in actually in a. a conference room on the probably, I don't know, 30 or 40th floor of the Nine West building overlooking Central Park in New York City. Uh, and and it was the Sendent headquarters, and they're now known as uh, Wyndham Worldwide. But mm. the room was filled with a, a, at least 40 guys in suits, you know, all sitting around this gigantic uh, boardroom table. And there were two women at the table, and one was myself, and another was uh, one of the women uh, that would go on to be uh, one of the executives of, of the company that was being merged. And, uh, you know, and and that was the day that I knew that, you know, that I actually did have a seat at the table, but I certainly spent lots of time in these earlier stages. I had never thought about the firewalker one, um, but you're absolutely right. It is painful to stay in that place where you, you don't know and you've got to move really uh, fast, but really cautiously. But I, I, um, I, like, you know, <clears throat> I like your observation about what is it that you do need to take with you, because just pure sort of naked of, oh, I'll just figure it out, doesn't work. And um, let me, I'll share an insight, and this for me was an insight that was clarified by one of my um, 
colleagues, clients at Google, uh, Lisa Gavelber, she's one of the vice presidents of, of marketing at Google, and she and her team and I had been having a number of talks and seminars around this idea of rookie smarts, and she got all excited. She came up to me when we um, saw each other at a conference, and she came running up because she'd been stewing on this, and and she had this insight. She said, Liz, I, I have this like little theory, this idea. She said, I think that people with, will do brilliantly in this rookie zone if they can take a strength with them. And I really think she, I, I just liked the way that she said this, and it was when it first mm-hmm. kind of clarified it for me. Um, one of the ideas that came out of multipliers is this idea that the, the one of the ways the best leaders bring out the best in others is they they see them for their native genius. And by native genius, I mean the thing they do easily and freely. It's just the thing that you do. It's not something that you learned at school. It's not a, you know necessarily something you would put on your resume. It's just what your brain is wired to do. It's almost what <laughs> you can't help but do. And um, like for me, one of my little native geniuses is I'm a really good synthesizer. I'm really good at sort of taking in a lot of data, whether that's reading a bunch of articles or listening to people talk or looking through spreadsheets and finding patterns. So I'm a kind of a pattern finder. And that's what I would consider to be my native genius. Other people, by the way, have been the ones who have helped me see that. They're like, oh, Liz, that's that thing you do. You're such a synthesizer. Sounds, you can, sounds like your next book, Liz. Oh, no. <laughs> well, but that – that's a strength I have that I can take with me into rookie assignments where I really don't know what I'm doing, but you know what? What I'll do is I'll sit and I'll listen to people and I'll find patterns. And and each of us have some set of these little geniuses that we have. And the more that we know it, the more we can make sure we um, we pack that with us on into these new assignments and know when it's time to kind of to your metaphor, open up your pack and pull this out. Like, okay, I have no clue what I'm doing, but, you know, I'm really good at building relationships. That might be some, I'm not saying that, that that's with me, but that might be some. Right, like, right. And so I'm just going to keep forging relationships till I build an alliance to solve this problem. Or somebody else might be really good at finding problems or holes. And these are really transferable kinds of skills. So I think the more that you understand your native genius, like you're really your towering strengths, kind of your killer right. strengths. Yeah, I've never heard it called that, but I love that term. I, I think it's native, and I think, you know, and for me, I look at these as, as God-given gifts. Like these are part of, I don't know, our spiritual DNA, so to speak. Uh, right. That I think. Well, it is. It is. And and using the term DNA actually, I, I think, is brilliant because it's not single dimensional. Um, you know, it's surrounded with with other things. So there may be that core strand of, of the talent, and, but it, it has all of these things around it, whether it's personality, you know, being outgoing or, you know, being introspective and, and, you know, being a great researcher, you know, you you actually don't want to be the life of the party and a great researcher. Those two things work really well. They they usually don't work um, well together, but knowing what this is, what is native really, really helps you. I think the other thing that you need to put in that backpack, it's sort of a universal skill that we all need right now is it's, having um, a fast learning process and knowing how to get halfway up a learning curve. Um, Most of the work we do doesn't require getting all the way up big curves of mastery, those 10,000 kind of hours, but there's so much where it's like, okay, I have to become an expert in this. Okay, new problem. I have to become an expert in this. And this is really the universal skill. Uh, I'm a mom. I have four kids. They've all gone through the public education system and there's always these moments where I see them just laboring over um, a piece of homework or a test or, you know, agonizing over, what is it, like differential calculus or the capitals of, you know, um, all the the 50 states. I still have no idea why we require people to know this. I'm thinking, isn't it more relevant to know where there's airports? 
because you know, I've <laughs> never really had to know what the capital of Mississippi was or, you know, Minnesota, but right. I do want to know where the big airports. Anyway, so I see them struggling with this, and there's a part of me that wants to say, don't worry your pretty little head over this because, you know, that what you're learning right now, you'll never need to know that. Like, it's very unlikely, unless you go into a very specialized field, that this knowledge that you are acquiring that you're ever going to put it to use. I mean, think about how I, I used to, I was a pack rat through college. I used to save all my notebooks from all my classes, and I can tell you I have never opened a single one of them. And so my, my inclination as a mother is to say, oh, you know, you don't have to really worry about that. However, I can step back and see that the process they're going through is what is vital. Being given a subject that you don't let love you don't necessarily care about right. maybe you don't have a good teacher maybe the textbook's bad that that process of learning those 50 capitals and learning that getting it in your brain being able to get it back out of your brain be able to integrate it into a project and then to let it go and dispose of it that's the valuable skill it's how fast you can scale a learning curve and that I think is the universal skill oh absolutely and and you know I mean it's funny because I've got a senior in high school and a freshman in high school and and uh, although I, I think I'm a, a tad bit older than you are um, you know we go through that same dialogue and and you know also the whole bit about uh, you know you're also learning how to be honest versus taking the easy way out and the shortcut you know because plagiarizing is fast um original thought is harder right right and, and so some of the disciplines of of that whole uh you know set of things that, that we are learning and i you know i tell my son all the time because he's not the student out of the two of them my daughter is a much more natural student um you know but i, I tell him look you know you're learning to learn and you're learning to do things you don't like, you know, when he said he wanted to quit Mandarin Chinese, you know, I, I could spend all of my time trying to explain to him how, you know, the world needs to know Mandarin Chinese, but to him, you know, he just wants to fish and he wants to have a fishing show on TV. And so what's more important right now is that he does well in, you know, in math and in science so that he can get a degree in marine biology and actually be interesting on TV and not just, um, right. you know, one of the guys with, uh, you know, no teeth and, <laughs> whatever who do do well um right. i want to shift gears just a little bit and talk about the second part of the book which is about cultivating rookie smarts and it sounds to me like that's cultivating that in others and so the first part of that uh second half of the book is about the perpetual rookie and you ref referred to this a little bit and, and i'd like you to give the background of the perpetual rookie what what does that look like Oh, you know, when I was out there studying how people operate in rookie mode, I couldn't help but notice this breed of leaders who seem to maintain their rookie smarts because this rookie smarts is very natural to us when we're new to something. We don't have to work really hard to kick into these modes. It comes to us because we're a little bit desperate. And particularly if you've signed up for something that's hard before you realize just exactly how how hard it is. But it's really hard to maintain it once you, you've got that. And I was just so inspired by so many of leaders who who maintain this. I'm thinking of like Annie Leibovitz, the you know, the, the renowned uh photographer, the celebrity photographer who her colleagues said she treats each shoot as if it's her first. Um and I loved I I've I've um, heard her speak several times and listened to her talk about how she approaches shoots and, and obsesses over every detail. And she actually, anyone who follows Libowitz's work knows that she's always got these kind of big um, hiking boots that she wears out there. She, she doesn't maintain a studio, you know, a, a physical studio, because she feels right. it encumber her. And you see okay. so many signs of this kind of backpacker mentality. Or, or Bob Hurley, who is the founder and CEO of Hurley Sports. So, you know, um, you've probably got your kids have probably got some of their sporting goods. You might have some as well. This kind of surf and skate apparel company that's now part of the Nike brand. And, you know, Bob 
is such a perpetual rookie. When I went to go interview him for the book, it took us about 15 minutes to get from the lobby to his office, which is not very far from the lobby, because he had to stop and, like, talk to everyone, and he showed me all of their latest new – I remember him taking me over to show me the, the new board shorts and how amazing they were and, and how, you know, this designer and this person and all the incredible work they're doing, he's just constantly delighted by the innovation and the newness, and and he, he, he works with this kind of rookie mentality, and it doesn't hurt that he also talks like a surfer, like, whoa, I was so stoked that this happened. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I asked him, I'm like, Bob, how do you maintain this way of thinking and, and, and working? Because, you know, he's told me that his whole company was built on essentially rookie smarts. He said in every junction – I didn't know what I was doing, and it turned out to be an advantage. And they've got this incredible story of growth. How do you maintain this, Bob? And he told me the story that really stuck with me. He, he, he remembers an encounter he had on Huntington Beach back in 1979. And, um, you know, Bob was a, a surfer and a good surfer, and he, he surfed with this elite group of surfers. And he was admittedly kind of on the outer edge of this elite group, but he hung with the, the, the really the pro surfers and Huntington Beach, like um, I have a son who, who's a surfer, and I'm learning more and more. There's a real culture and a protocol and a pecking order to surfing. Like the good surfers surf on the prime waves, and the newbies and the teenagers and the punks, they're relegated to the other waves, and they don't mix very well. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, my, my son Christian was saying, yeah, you know, if you try to cut in and catch a wave with a group of professional surfers, they'll literally, like, grab your leash and pull you back down from the wave. So anyway, there's this pecking order on the beach, and Bob's um, surfing with this group of elite surfers, and he loses his board. It goes under the pier, and if you've been to Huntington Beach, you know there's some nice waves on both sides of the pier, but the big waves are, I think it's the north side of that pier. He loses his, his board, he swims after it, and on the other side of the pier, over in the junior waves, kind of the, the, the less attractive waves, he sees this, a surfer that goes by the name Rabbit. His, his name is Wayne Bartholomew, and he's an Australian surfer, and he is, at the time, the reigning world champion surfer. This is back in 1979. And Hurley sees him, and he's like, dude, you're a legend. Like, what are you doing over there? Come surf with this over here. Like, I'm sure he said something like, whoa, the waves are righteous, you know. <laughs> and the reigning world champion is surfing with this group of teenagers and kids and young punks. And he said, that's kind of you, mate, but I like to surf here with the kids. It's where I get my energy. They inspire mm. me. And, and Bob said he's never forgotten that that when he gets feeling stuck or stagnant and and in a rut in his own work he says some days he grabs his board and he goes down to the beach and he so this is a company that sponsors so many of these professional surfers he goes and he surfs with the amateurs the up-and-comers and he lets mm. them and their energy and their hunger and their hopefulness and their boldness renew him he said but i don't even have to go surfing i can just walk down the hall and find the amateurs in my organization the interns the new hires the people who i know are tackling a really big assignment and doing something new for the first time and i just hang with them <laughs> i love that you know liz i know you you go out and talk uh, to a lot of groups and in the next chapter uh, in the second part of the book, it's called Rookie Re Revival. Are, are you seeing a revival uh, about this, that, that the willingness of the old guard to actually change their organizations? Because you talk in, in the last chapter of the book, um, and, and you don't use the word culture in the title of, of the uh, chapter. You call it the rookie organization. But, you know, again, you're, you're talking about shifting the values of of businesses, right, all different kinds of businesses and organizations from valuing learning, you know, to, to or, or valuing knowing rather, you know, and now shifting to this, this valuing of, of the learning process. And, and so you use the word revival, but that, that would imply that we've been there before. You know, so, I think we have been there before. And when I joined the, the workforce, um, you know, there's a big focus on 
um, Peter Senge had a book called The Learning Organization, and there was yes. a big focus on how do we create a learning culture. And it was, um, you know, I'm not an expert in the learning organizations. I don't want to misquote the book or any of the ideas, but it was how do we, like, skill up and how do we learn. And I think some of that original message has has been lost, and I do see a revival of that concept right now. How do we create an organization that goes beyond knowledge capture? Like most big organizations have knowledge management systems. How do we capture what people know? Um, this is where I probably have to admit I get a little bit of sick pleasure out of watching people try to do this. I tried to do it at Oracle as well because it's it, it's <laughs> kind of like getting um, – uh, a bunch of toddlers ready to go out the door. Like there's a point when I had, uh, you know, the the three year or the the five year old, the three year old, the one year old, and by the time you get the five year old dressed, and you now turn to the three year old and you get the shoes and the coat on, the five year olds now become undressed, and then the baby, you know. So it's like, right, just the time you get that job done, it gets undone. You know, by the time it takes to codify knowledge inside of a large complex organization that knowledge is no longer relevant and the problems have changed. And I think we're seeing organizations realize that it's not about just capturing who knows what. It's about how do you create agility across your organization. And I think we're seeing more and more organizations seeking an agile culture. Some of that can be accomplished with um, lean methodologies, agile development, but how do you create true agility of action requires agility of thinking and an ability to kind of climb up these learning curves and even if you don't want to figure figure it out and and I think right. we're also seeing a real prize around people um like their learning agility as a professional um as we're right. considering people for new roles it's not just what have they done and what their experience is do they have a track record? And what in my nomenclature would be, do they have a track record of rookie smart, smarts? Do they right. have a track record that shows, uh, Chicky, like you do, like this is a person who can go do something they don't yet know how to do, figure it out fast, deliver, and then be willing to let go and move on to the next hard thing. Like Right. But, you know, I was such an anomaly in corporate America, you know, in, in the years, and, and I've already been out of corporate America for 20 years. So it's been, you know, a pretty substantial amount of time. But, you know, the the skill that I always look for in, in team members is what I call intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've spent the last um, eight or 10 years uh, in technology companies that I've built, where I'm trying to find development partners who work that way. And and part of the problem, and it's the same thing that you've described in corporate America, there was always a prescription for how things were done, right? There was a manual, there was a history there, you know, and, and in the development world, there was a spec, right? And that spec spelled out everything right down to the colors and the placement and what, you know, we didn't even know to call it user experience back then. But um, you know, how, how the user was going to interact with the product. And, you know, it's funny, even, even Agile and, and the development methodology that has emerged out of that still isn't terribly Agile in, in that the thinking process of the people hasn't necessarily changed. And, you know, I just finished a short project uh, with um, some development partners that I have uh, in Provo um, that have been working on, on uh, you know, a new feature in, in my capability. And, and while we were working in kind of a new way, there, there still wasn't that questioning of, does this make sense? Does what I've been asked to code or asked to build actually make sense? And, and you know, that comes to me out of intellectual curiosity of, now, how would somebody use this? You know, would this make sense? You know, does this go here or would it be better there? And and really that that partnership that can emerge. And, you know, I think the same thing is true in a non-technical environment, but because I live uh, in that space. Um, uh, You know, and you don't want a programmer who is so much of a rookie that they don't know the tools that they need. But but you do want them to be enough of a rookie to say, now, I don't have experience in in the travel industry, but why why would you put this before that? (laughs) Right. Absolutely. It's what I found when I looked at 
the patterns of behavior across these people I called perpetual rookies, there were four traits that came up over and over. One was intellectual curiosity. To me, this is the ultimate trait. It also happens to be the number one trait of multiplier leaders. They're intellectually curious. Like mm. To me, it is the most important thing to have on your hiring profile. Um, it's one of the things that Google has. They have a very interesting hiring profile. I talk a little bit about it in that, um, oh, it's probably the rookie organization chapter, that last chapter. Hire for intellectual curiosity because intellectual curiosity is one that's going to get you up that learning curve because so much of what we have right. to learn, I'm not that excited about. Like, I think one of the most dangerous messages we give to young people right now is like, oh, go follow your passions, go do what you're passionate about. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's true. But you know what? There's a lot of things that you're just going to have to learn to learn about when you don't have some passion. And, and when you have intellectual curiosity, it helps you to find interest in those things. So one is intellectual curiosity. Two is humility. Mm. Um, for me, when I um, am looking to hire, and it's actually, it's just, this is sort of my recruiting criteria, not just for, for people who would work on my research team or in my company. This is also sort of my hiring criteria for friends as well. And, um, you know, do they have natural humility do and it's not like gee ah shucks look at me i'm nothing it's right a willingness hollow (laughs) yeah and you know and it might be that's a a meekness and i think it's a a lovely characteristic you know someone who is truly meek but the way i look for humility is is this person willing to learn in 360 degrees meaning do they learn as much from the people below them in the organization as they do above them? And are they just willing to be taught um, wherever they go, even by people that they don't really like? So anyway, there's intellectual curiosity, humility, deliberateness, meaning that that they're very deliberate about how they think about their work. They have sort of metacognition about their work. They don't just jump in and do it. They have, you know, some thoughtful processes, and particularly thoughtful, like Bob Hurley, on how he maintains a youthful way of thinking about um, work. And then the last one, is one of my favorites, is that they're playful. Mm. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. You know, and you don't have to have these big campaigns like, oh, it's okay to fail fast, fail early, but it's, they just have a playful orientation toward work. And I don't mean foosball tables in the the lunchroom. That's that's kind of. Um, a very shallow form of playfulness. Yes. Work for them is playful. And when you make a mistake and you have a playful orientation, you're like, oh, well, that didn't go very well. Or, <laughs> you know, and you can laugh. Well, and, and that comes with a sense and, of humor, too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. That was one of the other characteristics back to this, my research on multipliers. And I have to say, some of this is autobiographical. A lot of, um, you know, it's hard for a researcher's interpretive lens to not influence what they see, but it certainly influenced what I asked for. When I was doing the research for multipliers, I was putting this survey together of all these different behaviors I was looking for, um, trying to see what correlated with multiplier and diminisher leadership. And in the last minute, I threw sense of humor onto the list. And one of my colleagues was like, what? I'm like, eh, you know, for me, sorry, it's therapeutic. I was voted class clown of my high school graduating class. You know, I've, and so I put it on there. It turns out that sense of humor is the thing that is the most negatively correlated with diminishing leaders. You know, the kind of leaders who shut down intelligence and ideas and everyone around them. You know, the the leaders that suck energy out of a room is they don't have a sense of humor. And I just think, you know, like what happens when people have a ability to laugh at themselves? They're playful, they're humble. They're intellectually curious and they're purposeful. Mm. Is this put way... a whole room of those people together, and I need to hire them now? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, seriously, Chicky, what you and I should do is we should figure out how to find a whole conference center full of people Absolutely. like that and hold a hiring fair and just say, you know no what? Here we go. Kidding. We have assembled an amazing group of talent have at it. I mean, it would be this incredibly valuable service because I think those are the kind of organizations that hire that and nurture those capabilities will be the agile organization that stays relevant in the marketplace. 
Yeah, and you know it's funny because I'm I'm such a I, I'm I'm a rebel at heart, and and so what I'm trying to figure out as as I'm taking a look at the the college tuition. Um, you know, that is coming down the pike very quickly at me, you know, kind of hurling at me for mm-hmm. my, my daughter, who's a senior. It's like, what if we could get the parents who are willing to pay, you know, this $25,000 a year to, uh, you know, send their kids off to school? What if I could just get them, you know, to pay for an apartment and, and transportation and, you know, room and board for these kids, and then I'll train them for four years. You know, I'll do it. Right. Because I've got real work and real life stuff, you know, that, that they'll end up, um, you know, they will end up knowing so much more. And, and I, you know, I, I believe that there's going to be a new breed of university that emerges, uh, that is kind of the Uber, uh, of learning. And, you know, maybe you and I will, will pioneer that. Who knows? Well, listen, I have taken up uh, already a, a full hour of your time, and I'm quite certain we could talk the whole rest of the afternoon, but I want to be mindful of your time. And, and uh, I am just so, so grateful that you were able to make time for us today, because uh, ever since I heard you talking about this book uh, last summer, uh, I just I knew I needed to get you back on the show. And again, we've been talking about a book called Rookie Smarts, Why Learning Beats Knowing in the New Game of Work. And we've been talking to Liz Wiseman. Liz, before we uh, end the show, I would love for you to tell folks the best way for them to reach you and to follow you. Oh, I am pretty reachable. Our, our company is thewisemangroup.com. And the best way to reach us is info at thewisemangroup.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find there or on Twitter at Liz Wiseman. And um, any of those are good ways to do that. I try to tweet out multiplier tips as well as ways to kind of increase and use your rookie smarts. Um, But I think if I could leave a final message, I think what I have learned in all of this is right now, in the current world of work and in our modern organizations, it's not what you know that matters. It's mm. how fast you can learn. And that Absolutely. is really the intelligence that's going to help keep us and our organizations relevant. Well, Liz, it has been great fun. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I, I haven't sat down to actually read the book cover to cover yet, but I, I absolutely want to do this because it's just so relevant to where I am with my uh, current company. I'm in, in the startup phase, actually, with a company that uh, has been around for 10 years, but we're, um, you know, we're rebuilding ourselves and we're refreshing our technology and, and, you know, really making it so much more relevant than it was when we when we first came out with it 10 years ago. And it, it's still game changing, you know, that no one else in the industry is caught up with. So I'm, I'm excited about it. And I want to make sure that I stay in that, that learning space and, and that I build a culture of rookie smarts in my own company. Well, I think you'll find when you read it that so much of it is already native to what you're doing, and some of it will be a reminder to harken back to a way of working that you've known and how to keep right. that fresh. Um, so enjoy. Thank well, you one for of the having things me, that um, I had this conversation. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I want to do in in my company, and and I'm I'm transitioning from being you know kind of a solo entrepreneur who has been investing you know in technology for a while to actually transitioning to be a company, is you know when you walk in our front door, you know there is going to be the learning library, right, which has mm. all of these amazing books of these authors who have been sewing into me, right, in these interviews and and sharing their knowledge and their learning. And I, I just am so blessed uh, to be able to do this every Friday at noon. So thanks for being a part of the show today. And uh, for those of you who are listening, you can listen to our shows at www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. We're going to be launching the new Game Changer Network uh, in, I think, the May timeframe. And I'm uh, releasing a new book this summer called The Game Changer. So uh, very, very excited about uh, looking at our follow-on book to that. And and the book, uh, you'll love this, Liz, the book 
tells, it's actually a business novel. It's an allegorical story, mm, but the nice. story is about people who listen to my radio shows. And so I can already see how this one will be the next uh, version of, of that uh, story where the company has to stay relevant by making sure that they don't become experts. Nice. I like it. All right, my dear. Well, have a wonderful weekend, and uh, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Thank you.